So let's turn to our text today. We're in Mark chapter 4. We're at the very end of the chapter, verses 35 to 41. It's an interesting story. It's a well-known story of Jesus calming the storm. And as I got to it and looked at it, and somewhere along the way I realized I've preached this story more than anything else. This is the sixth time that I have preached this story, the fourth time here. And uh, I'm not sure I have that many new things to say. And the new things I thought of, I thought of too late and didn't make it in. So I'll have to wait for the seventh time. So let's turn. Mark 4, 35 through 41. And as always, let's listen carefully as this is God's word. On that day, when evening had come, Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as always, this is your word. We need it. We come to it this morning expecting to hear from you. Thank you for giving it to us and for making us your people. You've brought us once again to this amazing gospel to learn more about your son, Jesus. We ask this morning that you would give us the grace to understand this miracle, that we may see Jesus in his humanity and his divinity, in his grace and glory, in his compassion and love, in his authority and power, so that we may trust him more and more. And in this passage, you challenge us to have faith, to show faith, to exercise faith, to demonstrate faith, and to apply our faith. And we think we can do that, but we're not real sure. So help us to consider what it means to have real faith, so much so that it changes our lives. Thank you that today we're learning once again from Mark, a follower of Jesus, as he brings us the earliest account of the life of Christ. Help us to hear it, understand it, believe it, and obey it. And so we pray, speak through the gospel of Mark this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, we're talking about being in a storm on the sea this morning. And I don't think all of you are aware of this, some of you are, but one of my most frightening experiences came since I've been the pastor here. You're probably thinking it had something to do with a message that wasn't going well. And I wanted to just crawl away and hide. That's not it. I'm so used to that. It doesn't even phase me anymore. You may be thinking perhaps I said something controversial and people were offended. Yeah, that's not it either. After 28 years of preaching, I've offended enough people. That doesn't bother me much anymore 
either. Didn't happen in a worship service. Actually happened while we were on vacation about 20 years ago. Now, most of you know our children as adults, uh, some younger than others, but this was back when they were in the 5 to 15 uh, range. One summer, we went up to Massachusetts to visit Joanne's family, and one day her brother John, who's now with the Lord, invited us to go sailing with him. Now, John was a very accomplished sailor. Back then, he had a 29-foot sailboat named the Toucan Two. And he sailed it from New England to Florida and back. So he's a very good sailor. Besides, the boat was kept in this nice, calm harbor. And we're just going to sail a few miles out to this nice little island. And the water was calm in the harbor. Problem came when we got out of the harbor. And the water was not calm. In fact, it was pretty choppy. And the first thing that happened was everybody got sick. So I have this wonderful image of my family, uh, most of whom hanging off the back of the boat, backside sticking up in the air, decorating the back of the boat with the contents of their stomach. And it would have looked really funny, except nobody could laugh without throwing up. (laughs) Well, we finally got to the island. We had a chance to go swimming and relax. And John, being wise and thoughtful, was gracious enough to cook up a bunch of really greasy hamburgers just so we'd all have something in our stomachs for the return trip. Now, I thought getting out to the island was rough, but compared to the trip back, it was nothing. While we were on the island, the wind picked up quite a bit, and those three-foot waves became six- and nine-foot waves. And that 29-foot sailboat that looked so big in the harbor felt about the size of a postage stamp. And the waves were big, and they crashed into the boat, and they carried the boat up on the wave like it was a bath toy. And Joanne's sister Marie lost her hat to the wind, and it disappeared almost instantly. It blew off and landed in the water. A wave swamped it, and it was gone, just like that. And John said that if one of us went overboard, we would disappear pretty much just like that. In fact, he had this flotation pole with a flag on the end of it that you're supposed to throw into the water and mark the spot where somebody fell overboard. But he also said it's really not all that accurate, and if you go over, the odds are really against you not reassured. And John had started the motor to help stabilize the boat, but we're still getting knocked around pretty hard. And one wave crashed into us, tipping the boat sort of sideways. And my son Sam went flying into the corner. And Marie Marie and I were closest to him. We dove for him at the same time. And we caught him in the corner, and he was crying. And Marie banged her head, and I gashed my leg. And everybody was sick and scared. And this boat trip wasn't very much fun anymore. And I began to wonder if we were going to make it back. And the boat began to tip more and more as we went. And I'm sitting in the back of the boat trying to hold on to as many kids as I can. And you know how everyone gets real quiet when they're scared? Well, it was deathly silent. And the kids' eyes were wide with fright. And I could tell everyone was wondering if we were going to make it back. And at one point, and I'm sitting in the back left of the boat, and the boat's leaning way over on the left side. And when I looked down, I saw water. I was looking straight down, hanging on with all my might, and I was staring at water. And the boat was literally up on its side. And I thought we were going over. 
and I was petrified. I truly thought that my entire family was going to die out in the ocean that day, and I was helpless to do anything about it. Now, I've been in scary situations before. Spent a number of years in the Army, crawled under live machine gun fire, don't stand up. I've had a 60-ton tank roll over my foxhole with me in it. I've had a stun grenade go off between my feet. But of all the stupid things I've done, they only endangered me. I had never done anything before that endangered my family more than this. And the fear of losing my family was far greater than the fear of dying myself. I looked at all those scared eyes, and I was paralyzed by fear. And I started praying for all I was worth. And then you might think somebody who's known the Lord then for 25 years, now for 45, who's been to seminary twice, who's been a minister for seven years at the time, now 28, that I would know all the right words to use in a crisis situation like that. Not true. I looked down at that water. It was so close I could reach down and touch it. And I swear, the only words that came out of my mouth were, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. So much for a seminary education. What happened? I was overcome by fear. I was scared, frightened, terrified. I truly thought we weren't going to make it. And grip, fear gripped so tight, it's suffocating. There's an older version of the Bible where it describes someone gripped by fear. It says in Daniel 5, Then the king's countenance was changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his loins were loosened and his knees smote one against another. That's fear. Well, obviously we lived. We made it through the day. The boat didn't tip over, probably due to John's uh, sailing skills. And we made it back to the calm, safe waters of the harbor. I have not been out on a sailboat since. And I never put my family in that kind of dangerous situation again. But I was left with the clear understanding the sea is a dangerous place. It was no different in Jesus' day. In our story today, it's one summer day. Jesus invites the disciples to go sailing with him. Now think about it. The disciples are very accomplished sailors. Mark 1 specifically mentions that Peter and Andrew, James and John, who are not only fishermen, but fishermen on the Sea of Galilee where they were right now. And back then, Jesus had access to this 29-foot sailboat named the Ican Too. Just in case the disciples said you can't, you could just point to the name on the boat and said, I can too. Actually, I made all that stuff up. But other than the name, it's not far off. In 1986, archaeologists discovered a fishing boat from Jesus' day. And you can go there uh, near the Sea of Galilee today, and you can see it. And it's 26 and a half feet long and 7 and a half feet wide. And they think it carried 10 men with a crew of 5. And that part is true. So we're back looking at and learning from the parables and the miracles. We've had a series of four parables, and now we're going to get a series of four miracles. This is the first one. In the Gospel of John, the Apostle John writes near the end of the Gospel, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if should they uh, be written down, everyone, I suppose even the world itself 
could not contain the books that should be written. So therefore, whenever Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John recorded an incident, when they preserve an incident from the life of Jesus, it's not just because it happened. Lots of things happened that they didn't write down. It's because it also teaches us something. And the miracles of Christ are never just magic tricks. They're always redemptive and revelatory, which means they both redeemed and saved and taught people. They saved and they demonstrated. They saved and they taught. If we study a miracle, even though we're not there, we'll find it'll change us and it'll teach us. Now, what would this miracle teach us? If it teaches us anything at all, it'll change us. If you really grasp the, the teaching of Jesus' miracles, it should change you. If you grasp the revelation, it should be redemptive. So what is it that it teaches? It shows us Jesus testing the disciples. And each of these tests teach us something. So let's turn to our text, Mark 4, and let's look at each one. And we start with the test of a great wind. A test of a great wind starting in verse 34. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, in this passage, first of all, we see evidence of the incarnation. Within these verses, Jesus is both sleeping from human weariness and speaking from divine authority. Now, the former we can easily understand. We know tiredness. Pastors who preach for a long time feel the weariness in this text with extra uh, resonance. I have friends that do multiple services, and I don't know how they do it, um, giving it all they've got each time. I preach once, and when I do it honorably, it's surprisingly draining. It may not look like much to stand up here and yell at you for 42 minutes, but there's something that I can only describe as sort of a psychic weight to preaching by a preacher who's conscious of taking into the pulpit the mantle of the gospel, the eternal stakes of spiritual power to faithfully deliver the word of God. But Jesus blows us all out of the water. He preaches for long periods of time in the heat of the outdoors, usually accompanied by thoughtless and incompetent assistants without the benefit of a bottle of water, followed frequently by personal engagements with countless needy people, many of whom he heals or restores or delivers, and he usually has to follow it up with some tiresome debriefing with the disciples, ending up having to reteach and re-explain most of the day's events to make sure they understand. And then to top it off, Matthew 8 tells us he had no bed of his own to return to at night. So it's no wonder that at the end of another grueling day of up-close and personal ministry, Jesus is tired. And so we find Jesus asleep in the midst of the storm. And finding Jesus asleep in the storm tells us very often that God seems to take his time about storms. He lets them come. 
He lets them rage. He lets the waters come up. He lets the boat start to sink before he does anything. And often God seems to be asleep. We see that several times in the psalm. Psalm 44 says, All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. So it's not new with the Gospels. That's Psalm 44. In other words, when storms come up, when storms come into your life, when we're being battered, when it looks like we're sinking, and we ask for God's help, and the psalmist says, hey, we haven't done anything wrong, and this is happening to us, awake, why are you sleeping, Lord? And I think what this is teaching us is that God will often seem to be asleep. Because God will let things come. He'll let storms come. He'll let the waters rage. He'll let it go on a lot longer than we think it should. And he won't be hurried. Now, most of us wouldn't take that as good news. But let me tell you something. First of all, let's apply this to ourselves. The Bible is telling us in the test of the great wind that although God has complete power over storms... He usually doesn't act the way we want him to act. He often seems asleep. He often lets them go on. If you're a Christian, or if you're coming to Christianity, and you're under the delusion that once you give your life to Christ, everything in your life is just going to go well. And once you give your life to Christ, things just fall into place. Everything will be fine. That's a delusion. The Bible nowhere says anything like that. As a matter of fact, you have places like James where it says, James 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Have you prayed for steadfastness lately? Well, if you would like that, it comes through the testing of your faith, and the testing of your faith comes through meeting trials of various kinds. Want steadfastness? Jesus says, Get in the boat. So there's two lessons. First, we've been warned. God lets waves come. God lets uh, boats look like they're going to sink. God lets things look pretty bad. He lets the winds come and the storms rage. And so there's a warning there. Now, I believe a lot of the distress we experience in our trials and tribulations is simply shock and surprise. I mean, there's the pain of the actual trial, and that doesn't go away. But then there's the surprise that the trial even happened. You're sitting around thinking, how could God let this happen to me? I thought I'd been doing a pretty good job. What kind of God would let this happen? And that's the part that's your fault. You can't help the pain of living. But you can do something about the surprise that comes from the pain of living. The Bible teaches us don't be surprised. Quite frankly, that's naive. God's told you it's coming. You're not being wise here. You've been warned. God lets these things happen. John 16, in the world you will have tribulation. So quite frankly, it's your fault if you're shocked. That's the first thing. Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked at the testing of your faith. Don't be shocked at storms. Second, and I've already mentioned it, 
God won't be hurried. Look again at these verses. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Luke says, Master, Master, we are perishing. And Matthew says, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And it's easy to ridicule the disciples at this point to see them in some sense as being overly dramatic. But the text doesn't tell us that the ride's just a little bumpy. It says the waves are breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Now, if you or I were in that boat, even if Jesus was with us, nine times out of ten, fear trumps theology. Fear trumps theology. In a situation like that, terror is instinctual. In the middle of a violent storm and the boat's taking on water, we're all going to die is not a punchline. It's a prediction. And then Jesus gets up. You got to imagine the scene. He's in the stern. That's the back of the boat for you non-Navy people. And he's in the stern. And he wakes up. And maybe you're on the rudder. Maybe you're pulling one of those ropes holding on to the sails. Maybe you're just holding on something so you don't go over. You know, nobody really knows what each of these guys were doing, but on a fishing vessel, everybody has a job. And I'm guessing they were all doing their job. This is literally an all-hands-on-deck event. And Jesus wakes up, stands up, probably stretches and has been asleep looks around God won't be hurried and if you think about it do you really want to hurry God do you know that much about what the storm is about do you know that much about your own heart do you know that much about life I mean think about it Nowadays, every football team has coaches way up high in the stadium. They have their own box. And they have their little mics, and they're talking to the guys down on the sidelines. And they're telling the coaches what's going on. You know why? Because the people who are closest to the action have the worst perspective. The people who are closest to the action have the poorest understanding of what's going on. They can't see the big picture. Down on the sidelines, the coach is saying, why are they moving the ball on us? Why are they running on us? He can't see it. But up in the booth, way up high, the coach says, well, the linebackers are lining up way too deep. From up high, you can see it. And very often, the people closest to the action are the ones that have the poorest view. And you use this analogy, God has the big picture. God will not be hurried. And who in their right mind wants to hurry God? If God created the universe, it's only logical that his timing would often seem illogical to us. Let me say that again. It's only logical to assume that God will sometimes appear illogical. It's only reasonable to assume that God would sometimes appear unreasonable. And it's unreasonable to think that he would always appear reasonable because he's so high above us. He's way up at the top of the stadium. He sees things we don't. He sees things we can't. And a wise person prays, 
oh Lord, I'm asking for this thing, but please give me what I would ask for if I could see what you see and know what you know. God will not be hurried. God will let the storm come, even though it doesn't seem like it's fair. God will let it rage a lot longer than you think it should. And finding Jesus asleep in the storm tells us that he doesn't deal with storms the way we would like. But he deals with them in his own good time. And we're not so sure about that. And Mark tells us there's yet another test. And this is the test of a great calm. Verse 39. The test of a great calm. Jesus gets up and rebukes the storm. I asked the high school class uh, earlier this morning, have they ever tried to do that? And several of them said yes. And I said, how'd that work for you? And they're all like, no, it, just, it doesn't work. I said, just go out into the storm, rebuke the wind, let me know how that goes. But it says, verse 39, he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. There's three greats in this passage. Those are the key to understanding it. So what does this teach us? I think the reason that Matthew, Mark, uh, Luke uh, all preserved this incident is because people saw no greater symbol of death, of destruction, of chaos than the storm or the typhoon or the hurricane. Things that come from the sea, usually. Even we have come up at our most destructive with nuclear weapons. But one old-fashioned Category 5 hurricane is far more powerful than most nuclear weapons. There is no greater symbol of destructive chaos than the storm. And Jesus is Lord of the storm. He rebukes it with a word... And there was a great calm. Again, in the Psalms, there's this great place where it says, Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the oaks to shake and strips the forest bare and his temple all cry glory. The physical storm is a metaphor in some ways for the insecurity of life and how tremendously small and insecure we can uh, feel and we can be sometimes. But Jesus is the Lord over all of this. And this miracle shows us that Jesus is God himself. You know what it's saying? The Bible is not just saying that God's power is greater than the power of nature. It's saying that the power of nature is derived from God's power. Nature only has power on loan from God. All power is from God, which means that when it thunders, it's actually, in a sense, God's thunder. It's God's thundering. When Jesus says, peace, be still, and it all goes away, he's saying, I am that Lord. Storms only have power on loan from me. I am the Lord of the storm. I am the king enthroned over the flood. Therefore, if you take refuge in me, there's not a force on the face of the earth 
that will wipe you away. There's not a thing on the face of the earth that will strip you bare, make you shake, and whisk you away. In me and only in me are you safe. That's what he's saying. The great calm Jesus shows us facing down this great wind demonstrates that Jesus is Lord of all the storms, and that's where the rub comes in. I mean, the great calm is good news. The storm stops. It makes you feel good. Wow, you're impressed. But then there's the third and the last test, which we get in the last couple of verses, the test of a great fear. The test of a great fear. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now at this point, the disciples are likely shocked and awed. They're shocked by their awe. The dozing master has hushed the storm. You can hear the eerie quiet. Picture the previously churning waters, now smooth like a pane of glass. Not a wave can be seen across the flat surface of the deep, save the soft ripple from the boat itself. The wind has stopped. The clouds have cleared. The scene ought to be cheerful. We ought to be relieved, but it's not. The disciples are stunned. It says, verse 41, and they were filled with great fear. Matthew says, and the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the wind and sea obey him? And Luke says both, Luke 8, and they were afraid and they marveled. Now these disciples, they've seen Jesus do a lot of stuff. He's given strength to lame legs, sight to blind eyes, health to a centurion servant. They've seen leprosy cured, the dead come to life, but they've never seen anything like this. It is the greatest unleashing of raw power they've ever witnessed. And the leaders among the disciples are men who've lived their lives on the sea. Most likely they know all those Old Testament verses that teach that God alone controls the sea. Verses like Psalm 107 says, They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. And then they were glad the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. And so there they stood in awe of his signs. With the storm calmed, the danger of drowning is past. They are more stunned than ever before because now they find themselves facing greater power than a life-threatening storm. Power that arrived just as turbulently and just as suddenly as the one they just survived. And so they said, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And then their eyes see. They were scared in the presence of the storm's power, but now they know they're in the presence of someone from another world, someone from another place. They're in the presence of a greater power. They know they're in the presence of the holy. And as Moses hit the deck, 
when the glory of God was revealed in the fury of the fire, and as Job hit the deck when the glory of the Lord was revealed in the fury of the wind, now they know they're in the presence of the holy because in the fury of the water, the glory of God has been made manifest to them. This is God. They experience the presence of God, and they're far more terrified than they were in the storm. He who stands before him is no mere teacher or prophet or faith healer. In front of them stands the one who holds the power of nature in the grip of his hand. And in the wet, shivering presence of such power, the disciples stand in awe and fear and marveled, knowing that the man who slept in the stern rose from a sound sleep to do what only God himself can do. The tests of the wind and calm and fear remind us that we worship a great God, a God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're subject to the God who set the galaxies in motion, spun the planets on their axes, poured the ancient seas, summons thunder with his fists, makes mountains his footstool, commands the fires and the rains. We serve a God who is everlasting and all-seeing, a strong fortress and a mighty warrior. We worship a God who tabernacles with his people who ultimately has done so by inhabiting flesh, a God who will never leave us hanging, not even on a cross, because the cross revealed the death of death and the death of Christ, and he did not stay dead. You see how no nonsense this passage is? It's not just about storms. It's not just about having peace when bad things come. It's about serving a God who's far more powerful than we can imagine. You know, perhaps in your younger days, some of you, uh, maybe some of you are in the middle of this, uh, some of you once upon a time, maybe you got rid of Christianity because you thought it was intellectually untenable. Maybe in college, maybe some other time. <coughs> you said, who knows if there's a God? Who knows what God's word is? Who's to say who Jesus was? Maybe he was a magician. Maybe he was a prophet. Who knows? Well, Jesus Christ and Christianity became intellectually untenable to you, so you moved on to live your life however you wanted. But as time goes on, you come to see you need spiritual strength you don't have. You've come to feel an emptiness inside. You come to see life isn't something that you can manage all that well. And so you're nibbling around the edges of Christianity. Maybe you go to a Bible study. Maybe you're reading a book about Jesus. Maybe somebody brought you here. Maybe you've been coming for a while and you like that spiritual strength. There is no shortcut. You can't get some uh, spiritual strength by having a general vague faith. The Bible is very no-nonsense. The Bible says faith is applying what you've been convinced of, what you've been persuaded of, what you've seen, what you know. Let me put it this way. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is actually the Son of God incarnate, born in a manger? Do you believe he died on a tree, died on Calvary's hill, died on a cross for you? Do you believe he was physically raised from the dead? Do you believe he passed through the heavens and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and that he will come someday to judge both the living and the dead, including you? If you believe that, there's all the hope in the world. You can face anything if you take that faith out and apply it. But if it's not true, 
If there is no God who's created the world, if when you die you just rot, if there isn't any way to deal with guilt in an objective way, then there's nothing to hope for. You can't do an end run around these intellectual ideas. You have to go back. You have to study. You have to reflect. You have to say, is it true? Is Jesus who he said he was? Did he really do these miracles? Did he really do these amazing things? That's what faith is. It's applying what you know. And when we apply what we know about Jesus, we wind up with a strong faith in God. A real, genuine, self-forgetful, self-abandoned faith in God. The kind of faith that says, Job 13, though he slay me, I will hope in him. The kind of faith that believes that God in life and in death will deliver us. Daniel 3, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. It's the kind of faith that says 2 Chronicles 20, when Israel is about to be defeated, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Do you see where the tests lead us? Where is your faith? Get it out. It's unsentimental. It's no nonsense. It's hard-nosed. What's the evidence for the resurrection? How do you know Jesus is the Son of God? Were there real historical witnesses who saw it? You have to know these things. How do you know there's a God? Or maybe when you die, you just rot. You can't have faith in faith. You have to have, that, that's just not biblical. Biblical faith is having faith in Jesus. When the disciples confront Jesus in the boat, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? They're questioning Jesus' love. And Jesus is telling them they should have known enough about his love for them that they should have been able to handle that storm. But you know what we have? We have something they didn't have. We have something far greater. We have far greater evidence that we can get out and use. We know the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames, flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The voice of the Lord makes the oaks to shake and strips the forest bare. There's a storm that's far greater than any storm that you and I will ever go through. When Christ was stretched out on the cross on the top of Mount Calvary, the voice of the Lord thundered in a way it never had before. God forsake his son for our sake. And we don't know what Jesus heard, but we know God's voice thundered. That was a storm unlike any other storm. And Jesus Christ bowed his head and he was shaken, stripped bare, and wiped away for you and me. And a Christian is someone who gets out what they know when the storms come. If you say Jesus Christ was faithful to me by staying true during that storm, I can stay true to him during my storm. Can you get that out? You have to know where it is. And you have to get it out. Then you can face anything. I think one of the most encouraging things about this miracle is that the storm goes away because they go to him. Even though they actually go to him kind of badly. You notice how poorly they go to him? They say, Jesus, wake up. Are you going to let us drown? 
Probably not the best way to approach the Lord. Let me put it this way. That's a poor prayer. That prayer doesn't get an A. That prayer doesn't get a B. That's kind of a D minus prayer. But you know why we don't fail it? Because Jesus didn't fail it. Because it's still a prayer. Here's the most encouraging thing about this. They go to him so badly, so weakly, so poorly, so fearfully, but they go to him. And he responds. Just go to him. It doesn't matter the quality of your faith or the amount of your faith. If you go to him, it's faith. You're not saved by the quality of your faith. You're saved by the object of your faith. You're saved because you believe in Christ who died for you. You see, Jesus says, John 6, all the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. It is not the perfection of your faith. It's not the amount of your faith. It's just faith. Whatever you got, go to him. Go to him. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that once again you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Thank you that you have given us a King who rules over everything, including our storms and our lives. We know that we have little faith and we don't use it near enough. So Lord, increase our faith. Strengthen our faith. Give us faith. Father, forgive us for our lack of faith. And so build our faith this year as we live with Mark, a follower of Jesus, as we hear what he hears, as we see what he sees, given to him by eyewitnesses of Christ. Thank you for this story of amazing grace, for this miracle of the kingdom. Give us, we pray, the faith to believe that Jesus is who he said he is. And so, Lord, if there's anyone among us this day who comes here not trusting in Christ, we would ask that by your spirit, you would draw that person to Jesus, giving them the faith to know Christ. And teach us all to respond with a greater trust in you and in your word and in this gospel to draw us ever closer to your son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Hear God's blessing from the Psalms again. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe of your signs. God bless you. We'll see you Tuesday night.